Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Hey, man, I'm excited to announce a great community and platform that I've been working with called Rare Liquid. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, I was at an incredible event in Paso Robles with the Rare Liquid team and their founding artist and producer, Turtle Rock Vineyards. Uh, you might remember this was my number one wine from 2021, my famous Blackberry Cobbler a la mode motherfucker. Uh, Rare Liquid is really cool. They're building a network of artists and producers, collectors, and storage providers to solve the provenance problem for the rare wine and spirit industry. Members get access to verified limited edition drops from elite producers and can frictionlessly share, trade, gift, and monetize their collections. While for the first time in history, artists and producers can earn a royalty payment every time their bottles trade on the platform. Rare Liquid is expanding to 560 members through their invite-only Founders Club drop. You can check it out at rareliquid.club, which I'll put in the show notes. Uh, Rare Liquid has given me a limited number of membership invitations. If you're interested in an invitation and learning more, hit me up on Instagram at MJTaller, or you can just send an email to blackwineguy at gmail.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is a fifth-generation Northern Californian with a distinguished 25-plus-year career, Tony Biaggi. Uh, a graduate of UC Davis, Tony has been making wine since his first internship in 1992. He is one of Napa Valley's most dynamic winemakers, having worked with scores of highly acclaimed wines. He is known amongst his peers for his razor-sharp palate, tasting recall, and encyclopedic knowledge of winemaking history and techniques. Tony strives to balance deep, pure fruit expression with the tensional edge of vibrant acid in his wines. And amongst his critical accolades, Tony was named Vinuous Winemaker of the Year in 2020. Welcome, Tony. Hey, MJ. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks so much for coming in. Um, tell everybody about the wines you brought before we get started. Well, I brought two quick wines for you. Yeah. So I brought the current vintage of, I make Chardonnay as well. I mean, Cabernet is what I'm known for, but I love Chardonnay. I've always been a, you know, just the whole process of it from going to Burgundy and all my other friends. It's such an interesting varietal. So I, I did um, our 2021 Charlie Smith Chardonnays from Moon Mountain, so not Napa Valley. And then I brought our 2016 Avoils. So it's a Cabernet Franc Cabernet blend from Oakville Ranch up in Oakville on the eastern hills of, of Oakville. So Nice. Very nice. I'm excited to try your wines. Um, so, Tony, what I do, let's, I'd like to start at the beginning. So, you're fifth generation Northern Californian. Um, where are you from? Uh, San Mateo, California. You represent 415 in the old days, now <laughs> 650. So, yeah, I had a great time growing up there. I mean, it was, a, it was an idyllic place to grow up. Uh, it was smaller. The peninsula back in the day, now everybody looks at the peninsula as being sort of the haven of dot-com generation of tech. But it was a lot of upper blue-collar, lower white-collar jobs. I mean, my friends' fathers were carpenters and all these different things. But 
a lot of Italians. I mean, it was just a really cool spot to grow up, a lot of good food. I mean, we would fish in the bay on the weekends. We, it was just a great spot. I, I never, never knew something. I was never bored growing up on the peninsula, and it was fun, small, like just a good spot, you know? There's some interesting things that went on that were weird, but for the most part, I mean, it was idyllic. I mean, I can't complain, you know? My parents were divorced early, but my dad lived in the next town over. I actually grew up in Belmont, but I say San Mateo because most people know it. Mm-hmm. But my dad was in San Mateo. I went to high school in San Mateo. So, you know, I went back and forth, but it was just a great spot. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, did you uh, play any sports in school or anything? Were you yeah, I, I played, you know, I was like every other kid. I mean, the Peninsula was a hotbed for baseball. So okay. baseball is what I was, you know, I got to college for wrestling, but baseball was when I went to the high school. I went to Sarah High School in San Mateo. Tom Brady went, was a graduate of there. He was an eighth grader when I was a senior. Um, Barry Bonds went there. Uh, Greg Jeffries, all, you know, all you East Coasters, you know, Greg Jeffries was sort of for the Met. If you're a Mets fan, you love Greg Jeffries. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we were known for baseball, and I played baseball as well. And I, and I, met, I lettered in all three sports, football, baseball, and, re- and wrestling. So, But, you know, for the most part, uh, it was just a great experience growing up on the peninsula. You know, food. It was all around us. I jokingly always say, like, my mom was talking about, you know, cra- uh, Dungeness Crab was 75 cents a pound mm. when we were kids, you know. And so you had all this great food around us, great wine. But you never knew. It was just part of your lifestyle. You know, gardens. Everybody had a garden. Everybody knew how to garden. So <laughs> it was funny. So That's funny. That's crazy because you think about um, now the whole – well, the city's urban gardening. But, you know, back in the day – yeah, people had gardens. What like tomatoes? Oh, eggplant, tomatoes, zucchinis. I mean, problem with zucchinis, I mean, you could throw seeds on cement; they grow anywhere. <laughs> you know, tomatoes now are that same way. Everybody gives you a case of tomatoes. Like, hey, you know, MG, here's a here's some here's some heirloom tomatoes. You're like, and I've gotten five of these this week. You know, but back then it was you'd invite someone to come over and get some tomatoes. They would run to your house. My grandfather grew great tomatoes. It was you know because Belmont was colder than most peninsula spots, so great tomatoes, really fresh, flavorful, lots of acid. So. But yeah, it was just it was there, and I just sort of took it for granted almost. Like it was like, wow, yeah, sure, everybody's got a tomato garden. They didn't. Yeah, I yeah. knew I didn't know that. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So fifth generation. Um, you mentioned your grandfather. Did did you and your Italian? Did you guys do Sunday dinners? Yes and no. Okay. Um, we did more just dinners. I mean, it was okay. just a matter of never every Sunday because my dad and my mom split up when I was very young, gotcha. but my, and that was his father. But yet they lived five minutes from me, so. I could, my mom would drop me off there. I'd s- I spent s- an inordinate amount of time with my grandfather, who just passed away last year at 102. Oh, or 101 and a half. So um, I spent That's a good in, life. I'm, oh, s- I'm was, sorry, he, but still, that's a, a good life. He was a super cool cat. I mean, yeah. I think I wish he could have, you know, with COVID affected so many people mm-hmm. differently, but he passed away in the veterans' home um, at 101 and a half. I wish the last couple of years of his life could have been with more family and outside and yeah. seeing things. But he lived life bigger than most. So he um, was a butcher. Um, he worked wow. for Petrini's Markets. If, so if anybody knows the peninsula, uh, they got ended up getting bought out, but a, a very much an a, a independent grocer. So he taught a lot of people how to cut meat and so forth. Um, Brian Flannery, who is now very famous, I'm sure you know Flannery Beef, and he, um, he, his, father knew my, his father knew my grandfather. So we talked about that a little bit. And so it was a small area, you know, and so, but beef, Food was always present. So um, Deanda Bakery, which is another famous bakery in North Beach, you know, that's where my grandmother got her birthday cakes from. So it was just kind of a fun thing. I mean, stuff now that people would really talk about, you know, back then was just sort of second nature to all of us. It was just, oh, yeah, sure, it makes sense. So, yeah. 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 
And um, <clears throat> do you have any siblings? I do not. I was, you know, my, my I point. always jokingly like to say my parents had me in and they had perfection, so they never wanted anything after that. <laughs> I love it. But no, the true story is they had me late. My mom, my mom was adopted. She, I don't know if she really wanted children, mm. and my father didn't really want children. And they said, "Okay, let's have one." And, mm. and, and you know, like then they had me. It's perfect. So yep. why would you have another one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. That's how I looked at it. They don't, they don't agree with that, but I believe that. Listen, so. it's your story. You're sticking exactly. to it. Exactly. One hundred percent. So, so, um, you. Three sport athlete, yeah, lettered in all three, mm-hmm. and then you went to Davis. Mm-hmm. You now, did you go to Davis for sports, or did you know you were going to get into like viticulture, or, or or was it just purely? Strangely enough, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Okay, and I was going to go. And the time I was going to Humboldt State, I had a great year, my senior year wrestling. Mm-hmm. And wrestling is one of those sports where um, you get better and better at. The more you do it, the better you get. And so they sort of said, "Well, you could be really good at this if you stuck with it." Um, the other downside of wrestling is you could also be really good at it if you lost another 30 pounds. So when I got yeah, to of course. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got to Davis, I, had, I was playing football at 205, 210 pounds. You know, linebacker, I get you know you get beat up. You know, people coming through, hitting you, and I would cut to 175 to wrestle. And they said, well, you'd be a really good 154. No. And so I'd lose no. another 21 pounds. I'm like, I can't do that. And you know, they recruited me to wrestle in Davis was a division two program at the time so Kay. they did not give scholarships yep. they said you can come in and you can play here but we can't give you any money so well if you're not giving me any money i'm not wrestling so i played baseball for a year redshirted and you know baseball is a game of, of projecting and i was done i was never going to get any better i was as good as i was ever going to be and i was okay with that I, you know i'd gone as far as i could go and I had friends that were drafted. I had one friend named Danny Serafini who was drafted in the first round by the Twins. Mm-hmm. You know, I had other f- buddies who played professionally as well, and I wasn't as good as them anymore. I just knew it. Yeah. You know, I love the game. I mean, who doesn't love baseball? It's what we grew up with. But so I just then all of a sudden I took a winemaking class with Ann Noble, and I said, "Oh, this is, I don't want marine biology anymore. I want to be a winemaker." So. Why marine biology though? Was it like like because I used to work with kids and like was it you like watch Jack Cousteau? Like when I was working with kids, like CSI was big, so everybody wanted to be a crime scene investigator. But like, why marine biology? Just curious. I think it was the discovery, the knowledge. Just all of a sudden, you can just pull something up, you know, pull a net. You drag the bottom of the ocean. Here comes this discovery. Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. What is this? Mm-hmm. I knew I could never be behind a desk. I mean, I don't know the movie Say Anything. You know, yeah. When uh, Cusack's talking about what you know, he knows who he is. He said, "I, I don't want to buy, sell." Or process anything. I don't want to process anything bought, sold. One hundred percent. I I totally identify <laughs> yeah. with the comment. I want to be. I couldn't be behind a desk. And some people can do that, and they do really well for themselves. I had to be outside. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm. You know. I'm hyperactive. Was diagnosed very young as ADHD. I mean, I had to be sort of intrigued at all times. You know, if not, I just go off the deep end. So, marine biology was. You know, out discovering I wanted to do that and then all of a sudden winemaking was well you're outside mm-hmm. you're discovering and you're creating why wouldn't you want to do that so and I worked for really good mentors I had so many good mentors we'll get into that but that that always sort of pushed me for that way never ever never negative always positive so and speaking of winemaking Chardonnay man yeah you know <laughs> I always thought Mountain Chardonnay would be really cool yeah um I thought Howell Mountain Chardonnay would be the coolest. Um, you know, Clodiciel from Peter Michaels originally off mm-hmm. of Howell Mountain. So I was always looking for sites, and then Phil Couturier came to me with this site saying, um, hey, I got some Wente clone, you know, Shopberry clone Chardonnay growing at about 1,200 feet elevation in iron soil. Is you interested? Yes, I am. You know, yes, before he even said it. It's right next to Kistler's Estate Vineyard where Stephen and Mark Bixler planted the original Kistler Estate. So why wouldn't you want to try it? And I'm just really happy with the Chardonnay. So it's 
It's Burgundian in style. It is. I was going to say it's... It's native yeast, full mallow. Picked about 23 to 23.5. Nothing better, nothing higher than that because I want to retain a lot of acid. But the mountains retain your acid. That's the whole goal. Yeah. So I, I knew the mountains would help me keep acidity. I have to add acid and then no filtration at the end. So that's the goal. Does it always work? I mean, it's no never and always in this business, as you know. You taste yeah. enough wines. But yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. So. So um, that's so funny. I, I, when you said Moon Mountain, I was, I was like, I was going to ask you, and you, you, it's, it's a Phil Couture farmed it. Um, so um, is this going to be like at April Phil's Day? Have you heard about that? Uh, I've not heard about <laughs> April Phil's Day, but you know, Phil's Phil's great. I said the funny thing about Phil is that it, when my grandfather passed, I was cleaning out his because I, you know, inherited the estate because I'm the last surviving. My, my unfortunately, my father passed away mm. in '17, and all of his sisters have passed away, so I'm the last person standing. Mm. And um, I was cleaning out his garage, and I found a picture of Phil Couture's father that my grandfather and he knew each other. And it's just, that's how close – people always forget, especially in New York, how small San Francisco is. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the day, I mean, I think San Francisco this day is only 700,000 people in that city. Wow. I mean, comparatively speaking to what the, what the greater yeah. area of Manhattan oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. boroughs are. Yeah. So people are connected somehow. I mean, you can play the game anywhere in the Bay Area of, of six degrees of separation. You know somebody especially growing up. So, um, yeah, so I found a picture, and he's like, I don't even have a picture of my dad that young. Can I have that? So I gave it to him as a picture of Red Couture. It's his father. Oh, so. that's that's so amazing. I love that. So, yeah, April Phil's Day is they're doing on – it's going to be done on April 1st, not April Fool's, April Phil's Day. Okay. And they're going to be doing – tasting a bunch of wines that he farmed. So just get in touch with Sam. He's Sam's Sam, oh, I, Sam I, and Brian are putting together. Make I sure talk to Sam all the time, yeah, so it's yeah, good. Yeah. Sam's a good man. Yeah. So. Um, love that. Um, so you took this class and noble and winemaking, and then so you were like, I'm outside, it, you know, and, and kind of the same way when I got into wine, like you can never know it all. So if you're ADD, it like just keeps you engaged. All right. So um, then what's I, like I don't know if so what's the what's the program look at Davis like? So well, you yeah, Ann Noble is considered you know the, she created the wine aroma wheel, so she's considered sort of the godmother of um, interpretive tastings and, 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 and um, you know, uh, sensory analysis. I mean, not only does she train a lot of winemakers, but she trained a lot of people at IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances. And so she teaches Just you down the road in New Jersey. Yeah, no, I, it's so funny. I mean, I, I'm from that county. Yeah, so you, that was a school trip for you us. Can, you can make <laughs> perfume or you can make French fries smell better. Yeah. I don't know. It's just whatever you choose to build. I don't know. No, it's an unbelievable company. And she's she was an unbelievable lady. She's super supportive. Um, no bullshit. 100% no bullshit. But, I mean, I think we all love, you know, it was a really fun time at Davis. And the professors there were super sharp and smart. And I learned so much. Um, but, I, th th you know, I think education is always a certain point. You have to also learn the, the reality of what your education gives you mm -hmm. and then go into the real world. And mm -hmm. how did that pertain? Like I said, I always tell people, you, know, you learn how to be a lawyer at Harvard Harvard Law School or wherever you want to go. But you learn how to be a lawyer when you go to work for your first yeah, firm. Yeah, you actually, because I graduated law school, you actually learn how to pass the bar exam in law school. Yeah. And there's no, there's not a class on opening law practice. There's no, there's not a class yeah. on how to be a first year associate. You know. Yep. A a and uh, but um, I love what you said because, like I said, you work with kids, and it is about what your education, where it can take you. It's not like you're not done. Like yeah. so many people, when I worked these kids, I'm like, oh. Even I had them. I'm like, I'm done. I, I got this degree. So what? Oh, we get that a lot. I mean, there's a lot of kids come out now. And look, there's always a lack of jobs or lack of people for the jobs that need to be filled in the wine business. Because it is. like well, Now, Cal Poly, more than ever, has sort of taken over that Fresno yep. State yep. and Davis. But when I graduated, 
I came into a recession era. It was 94 or mm-hmm. 95 when I graduated, so there's a huge recession in California. But right after that, the boom happened, and there was we were always looking for good people. So um, <coughs> Davis is really interesting. I mean, it, it's a very, very great university as well, very much scientific-based. So, I mean, I, the person who had the, U, the UC book for chemistry was written by one of our professors. Mm-hmm. Brock was his name. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, t- you're learning history, philosophy of science. One of the professors was a Nobel laureate. So... You learned a lot at UC Davis. It's a, it was a really great experience for me, and it's a very safe environment. The school is in the middle of nowhere, as, as most people who know. You go into go into Tahoe. Oh, there's Davis as you go through it at 100 miles an hour. But it is very much that way. But I I was very lucky to get there. Very lucky. So nice. So, um, what was your first? Uh, internship because I said you've been working since your first internship. Dry Creek, there. Dry Creek in '92. I was 19 years old. I rolled in there and I just thought I should do this, and no one would hire me. I'm 19. Why would you hire me? I mean, some people wouldn't hire me now, but it's a different, <laughs> that's a different. That's story. a whole different story. That's a different story. <laughs> but I was 19 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. And Larry Levine and, and there's a woman by the name of Phyllis Zunis. I don't know if you met Phyllis. She's mm-hmm. in Sonoma. Okay. She was the assistant winemaker, and they took pity on me and hired me, and they put up with me, and, and I learned so much from them. They're such good people, and. Dry Creek was fun. I fell in love with Zinfandel there and just how to make wine. And then I really wanted to make wine after that. I mean, those they, they really instilled a love. Th- there was a whole feeling. I always describe Harvest as a pirate ship moving in a certain direction. And, and you know, a winery, in, in essence, is a pirate ship. And, and Harvest sort of brings out the weird, the best and the worst in people. Um, if, you've ever, you sh- if you've never worked a full hard Harvest, I mean, I, I recommend everybody, if you really want to be in the wine business on the production side, work a harvest yeah that 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 definitely gets you know the wheat from the shaft right there and i love the whole energy of it it was it was on all the time i jokingly tell all my friends now we are actually addicted to harvest and the adrenaline that pumps through it Mm -hmm. Uh, we're addicted to it Mm because it is you're on every day Mm -hmm. anybody who complains about harvest you're probably not going to be okay for the wine business but i always say i'll work a thousand harvests before i work two bottlings in a row <laughs> I always tell people that they're like, really? I go, one hundred percent. You know, so yeah. harvest is exciting. It's it's rebirth every year. It gets a new chance to do things, and I did that, and they they were very, they're very calm, collective, and accepting of my mistakes, and I was very much in love with it at that point. So, yeah, um, and Dry Creek. Let's let's dip into Zinfandel because actually I don't think I've had anybody make Zinfandel on the podcast. So, um, like, we'll get into it later. But like, you work there's so many new wineries that came out, but there's still these like these OGs like Dry Creek. Yeah, you know, but back then they were the OG. I mean, they were the dudgy. The, the, yeah, they were. They were just they were starting to spit what they were doing. You yeah. know? And my dad, my stepfather, I was really cool. My, my mom, when my mom and dad divorced, and this is a weird talk about life, but we all, you know, we're all touched by divorce at some point for some yeah. of our friends. They made a pact to stay friendly to make sure my life was good. Mm-hmm. And because of that, my father and my stepdad actually were pretty close. They would, tra- you know, when I, I played very, very competitive baseball, we traveled all over the country. They would travel together. When, when I had a wrestling match, my, my stepfather was on the road, my, mom, my dad would pick my mom up. So they both had a love of wine, but in very different ways. My stepdad was this cool bohemian cat. I mean, you know, he wore Hirachi sandals before anybody, <laughs> Hawaiian shirts, but it was cool. Yeah. He drove a Porsche, this cool little Porsche around. And, but he, he was drinking Ridge Zinfandels in the 70s. Because uh. you know, he, he, he was from Humboldt County. So 
he got out of humble opened the first i think one of the first safeways on honolulu in the 60s Damn. just sort of did some cool stuff yeah. you know and yeah. um he moved back to san jose in the early 70s and ridge was up there up on the hill and he's like i love zen and that's what he would drink so we always had Z- ridge zinfandels on the table that was like when he had a guest over and it was a good guest he might go to Montebello. Okay. So, you know, he had a couple cabs, <laughs> yeah, too, yeah, but yeah, most yeah. time it was Ridge Zen. He'd yeah. always talk about Ridge Zen. You know, he'd have Renwood Syrah or uh, Santino back then it was called. He had Santino Barbera from the foothills. Mm-hmm. He was cool, man. I mean, he was a great guy. He got me into Steely Dan, got me into jazz. This guy was just cool. And I, all my friends loved him. He knew how to throw, he, he knew how to teach everybody to hit. He knew baseball. He knew everything. He was one of the last confirmed polio cases from Northern California. That's which crazy. Is crazy. Just this cool cat. And yeah. so Zim was always in our house. Got it. And so my step, my, my real father would go to Lodi and make Zinfandel Petit Syrah with his buddies. So I'd go with him, and the wine was garbage. I mean, you know, and I had to finally tell him one day, he goes, well, if I had your education, I could make wine. I thought, you'll never do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very bad. Love you, Dad. But yeah, but, but one of his friends owned 200 acres, and they farmed for Gallo. And so we okay. go there. And my, back then, you know, a lot of us hunted. I mean, we hunted for dove and quail and all these game birds. We'd eat them, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, my dad still hunted for bigger game. I could never do that. I mean, I... You know, I, we always believed if you shot it, you cleaned it. Mm-hmm. And once the animals got bigger, I'm like, eh, that's a lot like, of. Well, I have a dog, and it's like it kind of looks like my dog. Ugh. I can't do this. That's awful. So birds were enough for me, and so, but it was sort of the camaraderie of spending time with your family, your uncles, your aunts, and that was really fun. But we made wine too, and so it was always sort of around. And I never realized. I met. I met. I remember. I met Julio Gallo once because we were mm. bringing the grapes to a facility that they would go down, then go down to Modesto and. Um, I remember just it was like I now it sort of comes all full circle of why I got into it. Yeah. But yeah, it was always around. But Zinfandel was always what my, my stepfather loved. To the end then he got older, he liked Pinot more and maybe a little Petit Syrah and, and Syrah, but he loved Zinfandel. Nice. So, I mean we went to the first zap. I mean the first zap I always tell the zap before it moved to the big hall mm-hmm. that was next to stars or uh, not stars what was it called um greens it was in that little hall next to greens you know the, in the vegetarian restaurant in yeah, yeah. Basin. so you know and so we used to do that as well so you know he we loved it so yeah. that's awesome so the dry creek was that that was like uh just like a harvest internship you were still yeah, in school right okay absolutely all right so uh then what was like your your next gig next gig was at hess collection so then i moved to napa valley and that kind of sort of cemented me into where I am now. I worked there, and that was a really hard internship. I, it was 12 hours a day. That was when you really know if you, you, know, if you want to mm-hmm. be in this business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Cabernet. They were making Pinot Noir from Viennesito at the time there as well for their wow. Pest Select. They were buying Viennesito fruit, which is pretty cool. Um, it was just a really good – and, again, great people. <laughs> they forgave my mistakes a lot. Um, that was fun, and, and so I worked with uh, Stephanie Putnam, who's now the winemaker, one of the winemakers for JCB. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've met Stephanie. She's super cool, and Mm-mm. she really was very, you know, forgiving. Uh, thank you, Stephanie, <laughs> um, and so forth. But, you know, overall, I worked there. But then I, what I did do is I got a job on the weekends at a wine store. Okay. It was Harvest Ended. It was called the San Lino Wine Center, and mm. that was sort of the pre – this is right when Napa Valley is exploding. You know, the new, the new generation of wines, you know, were exploding. All these new cool cabs were coming out, Maya, Araujo. And this store was sort of the centerpiece of that. This was before Bounty Hunter, even. Mm-hmm. And so I worked there. F- I, what I would do is after Davis, I'd come back and work Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And I go Friday afternoons, I work all day Saturday, I work all day Sunday, go home Sunday night. And it was an opportunity for me to taste great wines and get my feet wet or understanding wine. And that was really pretty cool. Yeah. So. 
I love so many. I love the conversation, but so many things you shared. Just want to highlight for people. One, like you said, um, if you think you want to be a winemaker, you need to work a harvest first. So like a full-on harvest, see if you can cut it. And then two, people ask me, well, I want to get into wine. I'm like, go work retail. A hundred percent. Go work retail. Yeah, see it. I mean, because especially the two sides of it. And in the end, you'll. I think the most valuable thing is you as a person. You yep. have to be in this business. Right. Because look at you. I mean, you interview everybody. If you hate people, you're not going to Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you're going to sell wine to people, you have to learn that this is a people business. And how do you get to know people? It's Someone told me very early, you know, no matter what you do in any career you go to, you have to be, in the end, it's all about sales. Yep. Whether it's about sales or not. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah, so yeah. you might not get a commission, but you're still selling. Right, right. So I mean, we, we're born selling. You're trying to, you, right? You, your kid yeah. put a crayon on the wall. You're selling your mother that you didn't do it. Like, yeah, like, exactly. like, like, like you, when you're a date is a sales appointment, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I would unwrap the presents and blame my dog. Yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's, that's, I mean, my dog doesn't have thumbs. How's he going to do this? <laughs> right. You know, I'm just trying to sell that story. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have thumbs. It's perfect unwrapping. I go, ah. you know, so how do I, how do I bury myself? So, He's you know. cunning, mom. He's oh. clever. German uh, shepherds, man. Yeah. They're the toughest. Uh, so. Um, Put a fork, uh, put a fork, put that cork back in the bucket. That bottle is so damn good, man. Woo, Chardonnay is delicious. So, guys, if you didn't know, Tony makes a, a beautiful mountain Chardonnay, very Burgundian style. I'm loving it. Um, all right, so you worked at Hess, and then uh, where'd you go next? I took a year off. I did some research projects at Davis, but it was nothing too serious. Then I went to work at Duckhorn, and that's really where I think – where I am now is because of then. I mean, Duckhorn was Duckhorn Merlot was iconic. I mean, still. I mean, it is. Yeah. It was, I mean, Duckhorn in general. He yeah. ran. So Dan should be, I think, put on sort of Mount Rushmore of of, of gen, geniuses of the wine business. Mm-hmm. He really understood how to sell wine, and not only that, he understood how to make great. You know, he left us alone. Tom Rinaldi, of course, was the winemaker there at the time, and Tom is a, is a genius, and you know, I, I consider him one of my biggest mentors. Um, he's the godfather of my daughter, even. So, mm. I mean, I think he is just an amazing human being, and him and his wife were so generous to me and what they gave me. And um, But it was such a fun time. I mean, this is when they exploded. Right. This is when the explosion happened. So, yep. I mean, we went from 300 tons, a small family business, to 1,500-ton juggernaut in five years. The demand just was way outstripping supply every year. And they gave me – sorry, I'm, I'm leaning too far back. They gave me – so much rope to hang myself and my toes dangled a lot but it never did and every job i was able to grow with it and as they were growing i mean we we started paradox when i was there we started we bought goldeneye Mm -hmm. when i was there and and decoy was already started so you saw everything and and one thing about dan is he knew where the great vineyards were we bought vine hill ranch we bought Mm. vine hill ranch we had stout all the vineyards that he bought were very close to superstar properties and so I would get in the car with them on a Sunday morning. They'd, they'd go to Model Bakery, give me a croissant, give me some orange juice, and just go, you know, don't talk. He's the one who finally taught me. Tony, you have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk, you'll be fine. And I learned that, oh, you mean you? Okay, yeah. So <laughs> I just basically just listened to what they would say about vineyards and where they are in Napa Valley. This is a good vineyard. That's a good vineyard. God, I want to buy that vineyard. And not only that, but Dan also understood how to market wine, MJ. I mean, he was a genius about restaurant man, you know, restaurant placements and how to manage a brand. He would know in California, to this day, I think Duckhorn still is, California Direct. Mm. They're a publicly traded company, and I think they're still, in the state of California, they have no distribution. They are winery direct. 
That's and for anybody who knows the knows the business, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that, that's <clears throat> and that's what he really pushed on how to that. And I learned a lot from him on that how to how to understand sales and marketing. John Conover at Plump Jack was my other sort of mentor mm-hmm. on how to sell and understand wine. But mm-hmm. but D- Duckhorn was in amazing spots. Mm-hmm. And you can just slide that microphone a little closer. Oh, to sorry. You. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you're you're fine. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Um, what are, what are they producing now? Do you have any idea? I mean, it's I don't really know. I mean, I, what I love about it is that Alex Ryan is the CEO of the uh-huh. company, and he was there when I was there. Okay, he was one of the third or fourth employees. So you still have a lot of DNA of the family members in that company. Pete Przybylinski is the head of sales still there. Though Pete and I were hired within three months of each other when I first started working there. So there's still a ton of DNA left in that business of the original company. You know, sometimes it doesn't happen when companies are purchased; people leave, but they still have a lot of people there. So I still think. You know, as long as you have that DNA, the company still is being run sort of in the vein of someone who was trained by Dan and Margaret. So I think that's what's so exciting about it. Yeah. So. And after um, <coughs> Duckhorn, Paradox, uh, Neil. Yeah, I went to work for Mark Neil. I had an opportunity. I had, I had some really good interviews that sort of, you know, I, I felt I was a second choice, third choice, and some great jobs. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that I, in the end I should leave. I wanted to do something different. Um, Maybe it was a mistake, maybe it wasn't, but I love working for Mark. Mark is one of the largest farmers in Napa Valley. He does a lot of work for Heights. He farms Martha's Vineyard, so for a lot of people who know Martha's mm-hmm. is, and we, we started Neil Family Vineyards together, and that was a really great job. Fun to work with him, um, hard-headed, love him. Uh, we butted heads a lot. We're still good friends to this day. I had coffee with him last week, but um, you know. But then I had the opportunity to really go, you know, he's still up, up and running up on the Howl Mountain, so he's the state vineyards, and making great wines and I'm so happy for him but I got the opportunity to go to Plump Jack and that property what they were trying to do it was exciting and, and it really for me was the next step and that was in 03 and I was there you know I got hired at 29 to make those wines and was super excited about being able to build that brand so were you uh were they already using screw cap when you went in they did they started in 97 and, okay. and you know, I was actually having this conversation last night with a friend about screw caps and yeah, they d- they were, and of course, you know, they stay when they interview you, you're like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "I think it's the best idea ever." Did I believe that? Absolutely not. I just wanted the job. Yeah, yeah. Honest <laughs> with you. yeah, I just wanted the job. Yeah, I'll tell you anything. Can I have the job? Yeah. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, the research we've done subsequent on that, like especially ten and eleven, I think Aaron, if you ever interview Aaron right now, mm-hmm. who's at at Plump Jack, will tell you the same things. What we found is the screw ca- the best corks work is the same as screw caps. Uh, the amount of oxygen that goes through is very similar. But the problem is the variation of corks is so great mm-hmm. that uh, screw caps actually works better because the variation is so small. Right. And that's the hard part. But when you hear somebody saying, I had a bottle of 59 Lafitte, it was like it was 10 years old. More than likely, it's because the cork was perfect coming right. in there. Right. I call it a dowel. Yeah. Like there's no lentils, there's no nothing, there's no air exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a variation off of that. And what we found is as you got your corks better, the variation shrunk, but it's never the same as a screw cap. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I was I did a, a wine tasting <coughs> at Yale last night and um I you know, they it was obviously the kids are younger than me and 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 they the talk is they're more conscious. I said, "Listen, I'm not politically correct when it comes to my wine." <laughs> I said, "I like a heavy bottle. I like a big punch." Yeah. I like a cork, I said for me and the theme I was like, "For me, there's nothing sexier. You pull a cork out, there's a sound coming out and just it's 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 romantic. I said I'm old. I said I get. I said I said and screw caps. And thank you for the screw caps because what I had heard was you know there you made a good point. Like the deviation is less, but 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 if you have a quality cork, it's going to be about the same. 
Uh, yeah, it is, but you're still going to have that failure. Yeah. And there will be. No, look, I, again, I mean, if I if, if, if I put my money where my mouth was, I'd have ski caps on here. I'm still not. I, listen, I, I'm not mad at you. I mean, you know, Australia seems they've fully, they went full bore. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, listen, look, we'll figure it out, right? But, it, you know, it, it is, it's the foil, like literally, and that's another thing too. Like they're like, you shouldn't have foil. You shouldn't put wet. Like I'm like, it's, it's the whole Ritual for me, cutting the foil. It's know. a tough. It, you know, I think we're all at that at that crossroads of of you know, is it good for the ecosystem or yeah. not? We're discussing this every day. You know, recycled glass. I mean, this bottle here is the cheapest bottle you can buy for my Chardonnay because it's light and it, it's you know recyclable. You know, that's the hardest part. Of why aren't we recycling all this glass and making bottles? Yeah, color is very hard. People, I don't think people understand to make certain colors of glass are, is super hard. Flint is the hardest because it shows it shows um, flaws very quickly. You can have I've seen flint runs where some look like smoke and mm -hmm. some has pink to it mm -hmm. because it's just the flaws in the furnace as they're burning are picking that up. And so, you know, some of them are very hard to do recycled on, and that's the hardest thing. And plus, I don't think people understand too is most of glass factories in America are monopolies. You know, right. there's a reason when Warren Buffett's buying ball glass there's a reason he sees monopoly <laughs> in this situation that's why he bought railroads i mean it's a monopoly it's know? funny like yeah I, that's like so true like you don't think about that but yeah like i mean ball glass right it's everywhere well go know? look at the shelves of your supermarket everything's made with glass yeah and so we are just another they, when they run bottles some of these factories it's just another insert we're gonna just go around glass this time now there are, of course are wine bottle factories but as it goes more and more, I mean, it's just it's, there's more demand for this for the for this. It's just it's harder and harder. Yeah, and um, since we're kind of on this tangent, I'm kind of geeking out. Um, why green? Is it just was that? I mean, is there does it something to do with wine preservation or just it's kind of like the color scheme you kind of went color on. scheme. Yeah. I love I love champagne green on, on. I would love to do champagne green on my reds, but it's a very hard color to get in red wine now. Um, they used to do a lot more of it, but mm -hmm. again, it goes back to we're just going to do very simple bottles. I mean, now, especially post COVID, it's I think anybody who's listened to this podcast that's in the wine business is like, yeah, Tony, packaging has become a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, shipping, packaging, anything, it's just become a nightmare for us. Whereas a lot easier before COVID to, to get your bottles, to get your foils, to get your labels, but now it's really become difficult to get supplies. Yeah. It's, I mean, that we're not, we're not alone in this. Yeah. I mean, the economy right. is suffering from right. this. So, right. but yeah, so this bottle here is a very simple bottle that, that they use, but I wanted a different champagne green bottle, but I just couldn't get it. Okay. <laughs> but I love the champagne green. I love champagne green. Big fan. Yeah. So. That's, that's really cool. Um, that's really cool. So, oh, I'm, I'm just, while we're here, like, any thoughts for you on box wine? Because some people are doing some premium box wines. Like I know Morgan is doing a, a Lulu box. Um, Tabas Creek did a box of their rosé. I think it's a great idea. Look, I have no nothing to really say. I mean, I think it's positive. Hey, yeah. look, let's get people to drink more wine. Yeah. Any avenue to get people to put more wine in their mouths is good for all of us. Yeah. So I think whatever they're doing to get more wine in people's mouths is the positive. I don't feel, you know, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Get more wine in people's mouths. That's do yeah. it. You yeah. know, if, it, if it's boxes, if it's just, you know, come come by with a waterfall and put it in your mouth as you go by, <laughs> let people to drink more wine because that's what we need. So, um, Neil. Neil is kind of, um, was kind of culty. It was a smaller wine, right? It yeah. was. In the early 90s, we did really well. Um, I was there in 01 and 02. 
He's still very small. Yeah. Uh, it was fun, but he's, what he did is he basically, all the vineyards he farmed, he'd pick the single vineyards he liked the most, and he'd make wine from them. Okay. So he has his estate on Howell Mountain. He had an estate in Rutherford, and then he made wines from all other different places. So it was super fun to make it with him. Uh, it was fun, man. I mean, we had a good time. It was just he and I doing the stuff and just doing really dumb stuff half the time, but it was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there for a couple of years. Yeah. And, um, and then you were at Plump Jack for, for like nine years, but then you yeah. started um, – Consulting, it looks like. Yeah, after I left Plump Jack, uh, look, I took Plump Jack as far as I could go. It's never about where the company can go. It's I think when when you make a change in the end, whether you want to blame everybody else for things, it's what you need personally. And I think it, you know you you can look outside yourself for many years and say, oh, it's this is not. Mm-hmm. I needed something different. At, at, at I turned forty, I needed something different. I'd been there ten years. I'd gone as I think as far as I could go personally as my growth. And then, so I jumped off, and then uh, Jeff Smith and I were having lunch one day. We hit it off as friends. Jeff was looking for a new winemaker. He and Bob were splitting up and going different ways. And Jeff and I see eye to eye on so many different things. We eat the same food. We drink the same wines. We kind of were going the same way. I mean, at the time, his winemaking at the time was different than mine, but he was kind of coming to me. I was a little going towards him, and we hit it off. And so Hourglass became sort of my first big client of my, of my company and still is. I'm a partner there. It's where I go. I call home, you know, before the fires. I go there. That's where my office was. And to this day, I hope I could be there forever. I love working with Jeff. I love his family. is great. My assistant there is awesome. He's super talented. And I love it working there. So that's where I went. So I started there. And then in 13, I started my own business, my consulting business on the side. He asked me to give him one year mm-hmm. to focus on Hourglass mm-hmm. to get it back up where he wanted to be. Because mm-hmm. uh, he was nervous about jumping from such a, a legend like Bob Foley to myself. And um, and then he said, after 13, you can start growing slowly. So I started Patria, my own label, which you see here, with some other consulting clients. David Senegal will be one of them at Senegal. And then from there, I've grown my business. And it's never been about looking for more clients. It's always been looking for fit. Mm-hmm. And just, I, I mm-hmm. don't want more. I want fit and better. So so let's back up a little bit. So Cade was a project at Plump Jack. Cade, yeah, Cade. So when I started at Plump Jack, I was interviewed at the old Plump Jack Cafe. I don't know if you ever had a chance to. That's mm-hmm. where Atelier Crenn is now. Okay. And the CEO of Plump Jack Group and John Connor sat down and said, Tony, what would you go next? If you had any chance, you, had, you, have, you, know, you know, money is no, no problem. Well, they meant, you know. Gordon Getty, you know, there's no, yeah. problem. I mean, that's not, look, they run that as a business. I don't ever want to claim it's just a rich guy's toy because it is not. They run it yeah, yeah, bottom gonna, line there. Yeah, yep. But they're saying, if you wanted to grow, what would you do? I said, well, we already have a vineyard on, we already have a winery in Oakville, Valley Floor. We should look in the mountains. And we found this beautiful piece of property up on Howell Mountain. And uh, that's where we went next, 2005. So, well, we, we didn't buy the property until six, but we started making Howell Mountain Cabernet, knowing that's where we wanted to go in five. Thomas Brown was kind enough to sell us a little bit of fruit, mm-hmm. and we bought a little outpost in 05, and um, we started there. Then 06, we bought the property. By 09, the winery was built, and we were making Cade. So, yeah, it was really fun to be a part of. And so I have a whole swath of listeners. Talk about why Howe Mountain is so iconic and important in Napa Valley. It's really one of the most – I mean, you have mount, most of the mountains we talk about or on the west side of the mount of 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 Napa Valley, you have Mount Veter, you have Spring Mountain, and you have Diamond Mountain. They're all along the western ridge, or sort of the uh, that that would be the Mayacamas. Howell Mountain is one of the only true Vaca Range mountains. I mean, you have Atlas Peak, but it's not the same as I think um, Howell Mountain. So uh, it's just it hits twenty three hundred feet elevation. 
a lot of weird different it's a, it's just a very unique spot because it almost is a little like if you look at Barolo I mean a lot of the pitches are different and there's very different aspects the wines you're going to get from say Abreu uh, th- from his property are going to be very different than maybe you get from Dunn because the aspects are so different and the soils are so different but it's just the funny thing is it's so far behind during and then it catches up during harvest because the inversion layer in Napa Valley fog comes in gets warmer up top it catches up so when I was at Duckhorn, Duckhorn had a ton of Halmaden fruit, and we would, we would have the guys come down, and they would have t-shirts and shorts on, and we'd be in full hoodies, and and sweatshirts, and you know, and heavy coats because we'd be in the thick fog, and they'd be, what do you mean? The fruit would be warm to the touch at 70 degrees on top because it'd be so warm up top, and that would catch you up. So I mean, there's many a times from Cade where I'd pull in, and the fog layer looked like someone cake cake frosted all in Napa Valley, and you'd be in t-shirt and shorts working. So very different aspect, and it just has a history up there. People planted vineyards up there. I mean, Randy Dunn went there in 79 to make Dunn Howl Mountain. Mm-hmm. So the history there is just so special, and that's why we went there. And it did prove to be, a, I mean, as, as Oakville's so easy, mm-hmm. Howl Mountain was a little more difficult to make wines that were in competition with Plump Jack. And even Odette at the end was easier to make wines that would register, you know, and it's not right or wrong to say with critics, but you could definitely get the unctuous richness where how I'm out and you really fought with Tannin. Mm-hmm. You're always fighting with Tannin mm-hmm. up there. So Those Dunn wines are like, they remind me of like uh, 60s Barolos and Barbarescos. Oh, yeah. They're just so... Oh, they'll, they'll be outlive us all. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, And so, you know, that was really interesting there. But it was really fun to do and to be able to work with someone like Juan Carlos, who was the architect from, now he's at Signum, but he was with, with Lael at the time. This really creative architect. It was a lead certified, I think it was a lead certified gold. No, silver or gold. I can't remember. Um, so it was all a lot of recycled materials. It was one of the first lead certified wineries built in Napa Valley. So very much organically built, very much recycled. And, and so that was fun to watch how they did that as well. And, and, and Juan Carlos is truly, truly pretty creative guy. So he yeah. built, he's the one who designed Booker as well in Paso. Oh, yeah. So very similar lines and so forth. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, super cool. Um, you know what? This is probably a good time to take just a quick break. Uh, and we're going to dive deeper into uh, Napa Valley, uh, mid-90s, early aughts when we get back. So we'll be right back in a few seconds, everybody. Did you know that one out of every five bottles of collectible wines is a fake? Rare Liquid has solved this problem with a tech platform that provides unprecedented trust and transparency for next-gen wine collectors. Working directly with iconic artisans, they verify each bottle's provenance at its source, then track its rarity, ownership, storage, and transfer history on the blockchain. Rare Liquid members get exclusive access to these verified rare wines and can buy, store, and pimp their collections on the Rare Liquid platform. Membership includes physical seller storage as well as cloud sellers, where you can display and trade bottles frictionlessly online without ever having to move the bottle until it's ready to be consumed. And because Rare Liquid tracks these on the blockchain, for the first time, artisans get a residual payment every time one of their bottles transfers ownership. Rare Liquid's game-changing tech creates a safe and frictionless experience for next-gen collectors while fairly rewarding iconic artisans for their craft. Rare Liquid membership is by invite only, but luckily I can help. I have a limited number of these invitations available for you, my listeners. And if you're interested in learning more about Rare Liquid, please reach out. You can hit me up on Instagram, at Black Wine Guy, or even better, send me an email 
blackwineguy at gmail.com and drop rare liquid in the subject line. Okay, we're back. So you mentioned something. So I read an article um, uh, preparing for the interview by Esther Mobley of the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, yes. Um, and it was about, it was a couple of years ago. It was like Napa Valley has perfected a certain type of wine, but it all starting to taste the same. And it's about Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. And um, you, you were, you know, I Googled Tony Biagi, and your name was in there along with like Heidi Barrett and Thomas Rivers Brown and like a, a bunch of uh, the high, you know. Um, you know it wasn't Mich- me. Yeah. Michelle Ravon. You know, it wasn't you know, me. <laughs> um, and what I thought you kind of alluded to this and Thomas said in the article even that it was people don't get in the 90s it was still early in napa valley like like people were like handing over to like young kids like these big projects like you said they said they allowed you to make mistakes they put up with your mistakes yeah, exactly but i kind of like the gist of the article was like the rise of the super consultant in that like now it costs so much to get into napa valley that um and you also alluded to that one group. They were like, they run like a business. Like a lot of people came in, and you know, if you're plunking down a hundred million dollars, you're you're not fucking around. You're trying to you're trying to get critical acclaim because you need to sell your wine at a high cost to you know to start to recoup before you make a profit. So you're part of that. So like looking back, looking back, what you, you know, uh, like I asked you a question. What advice would you afford yourself? Looking back at where you are now. Do you like? Can you actually believe like like the th- what you were allowed to do like back then? Like you said, like you were taken over Bob Foley. That was a big deal. Like yeah, um, you know, again, I, I I prepared for that that time. I mean, Duckhorn gave me so much opportunity. I mean, I worked there, and Duckhorn was the real deal. I mean, they weren't they weren't. It wasn't a joke, you know. And I took over. It was the second time I had taken over for a legend because I took over for Nils Vangi as a full time winemaker at Plumpjack. So mm-hmm. some of us had a feeling oh, that's the second time I've had to do this, you know. <laughs> so. But I mean, I had my own. I had my I, when I did that, I was ready. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was not ready, and I could do it. And what I also believe is, if I'm not ready, I'm going to work harder than anybody else to get this done. And I think that's really what it took. I, you know, I, and Thomas and I have known each other. I mean, I met Thomas in 1997, and he works. He worked super hard then. And now, you know, we we were willing to work harder, longer, and and, and more intensely than anybody to get it done, just because we had this opportunity. And that's kind of what it was a plump jack for me. Definitely, there was. I mean, I remember in 97 at Duckhorn, I always tell this, I mean, this is this is harvest. That was one of the hardest harvests I ever worked. I did 110 days straight without a day off. I mean, mm. it was just, and now granted, some were four or five hour days, but you still had to go in and put dude, your boots on and dude, work. 110 so, days? Yeah, because we went from Sauvignon yeah, Blanc to yeah. late harvest, and it was that way. We all worked that hard. It was a big harvest. It was heavy. You had to move the wines, but I learned so much in that time frame, and by the time you're able to ready to take that over, and you know, I think everybody's a different pattern now. I mean, part of, you know, you had brought up the Venice thing with Antonio. What I, the mm. most proud thing I am of that article, if you read it, is that I like to, m- I like to work with younger winemakers. And I really stress with wineries that I consult with. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm the winemaker at Hourglass. I have a great assistant, and he'll probably, you know, hopefully he'll move up at some point. But when I come up with a lot of winemakers, I like, find a young person, I'll work with him, and we'll train him. Get the best young person you can. I'll be the net for them to figure it all out. And... I'll let them make all the positive decisions, all the negative decisions. I'll catch them before they fall, you know. But you know, part of what I tell them is that you need to make a decision. You know, I've had some clients who are like, "Well, Tony, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think?" I go, 
okay, I usually sit down with my assistant and say, at these wineries, like, I'm a consulting winemaker here. I'm not the winemaker. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. I could fire you right now. Give me more money. And then I'll go hire someone who can make the decisions. Or you make the decision. Talk them out with me. And then, but you've made it. And then we'll move forward. And that's how I kind of want it to go. I think the, right now a lot of these these bigger wineries that can afford to hire somebody should. I think sort of the cult of my, you know, I, I think that what's, what the future is going to be like Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Funny story about Bordeaux is, I mean, I remember when I went to Bordeaux for the first time. Every time I went to the first coast, I went to all the first coast in one day. And every time I get out of the car, there'd be the same little dude with his briefcase getting out of the car too. I'm like, who's that dude? And the third time, I'm like, who is that dude? And all of a sudden, you know, I walk in and I ask the person who's, like, oh, that's our consulting winemaker. I don't know if it was Denny Darbordu or one of these guys, and I don't know who it was, but it was just like, wow, the first coast have consultants. That's, that's mind boggling. Like, mm-hmm. Of course they do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you force through the tree sometimes doesn't let you see the reality. Yeah. And so because of that, it was like, wow. You know, I think that's really the future of, of winemaking. Get, get a good young person that's ready to run through the wall and we'll work together to build something. In the end, we're building your brand equity, not mine. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, you know, with, with Samer down at Almarosa mm-hmm. or Josh at Jada. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I've done working with those two is just like, this is really your ship. I'm just helping you sail the ship better. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and you know, I'm trying not to let you run it under rocks. Yeah. So, because yeah. when you're a young kid, you do. <laughs> or sometimes when you're an old kid like me. Oh, no, we still run it under yeah, rocks. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but yeah. that's a great point. And, you know, what I'm kind of hearing, saw a great post, Catherine Herman OO up in Oregon, and she said wine is, uh, uh, it's uh, 10% wine, 90% business. It is. Right? I hate that part of it. But I know. And, and But, like, I think, and I've said this before, like, like you watch the Saw movies and, and it, you really see just this sexy romantic side. But, again, hospitality is hard. Oof. People are hard. High-end hospitality, you're, listen, you think – like literally, the guest is always right. There's there's no there's no margin for error at EMP. There's no margin error at the French Laundry, you, you know. Um, so like you have to know what you're getting into, and you know, and and I've had a few wine. We got a buddy who works at like a mid range, you know, fifty thousand, and like it's he's he says you know I sell a lot of wine in the ten to the fifteen to twenty range, right? That's a lot of wine. Like that's business, man. Yeah, I mean. If you're not selling wine, you're going out of business. That's what we do. In the end, you ha- you can't ever forget that. What we do is we create. But I, I, I would, I would honestly tell everybody at UC Davis or at Cal Poly Slow, go read Danny Meyer's book on on service. Yeah. As a winemaker, mm-hmm. understand that. I knew, and that's what John Conover and Dan Duckworth taught me as a winemaker mm. is your value is only so much to make it. There's a lot of great winemakers out there. Learn how to sell it. Like, just be passionate about what you do. Go out when you're out on the road. Be able to talk to people honestly and openly about fine wine, and that's the true value of anybody. Yeah. You know, very few people get the free pass of making 100-point wines and just being a hermit. You know, everybody else has got to work at it. Yeah. I mean, I, today I just we came from— can't be Jean-Louis Chauve. Well, no, here's <laughs> the funny thing. I just came from um, a lunch with a good friend of mine, and we look over. Chateau Yakim's having a, a winemaker lunch. Yeah. Chateau Yakim. Yeah. What the hell do they have to do that for? All this, all the hot, hot psalms, all the best psalms yeah. in New York were there yeah. drinking Yakim, a three liter 2020. You know, and I'm going, well, if they got to travel, who am I? 
Right. You know, I'm like, okay. Then my buddy, like, maybe we should just go sit at the end of the table. Like, who are you guys? I'm nobody. But exactly. Try the wines. <laughs> we probably got in trouble for that. But I mean, but, you know, if they're traveling, I'm like, I'm Tony Biaggi, bitch. Yeah, I, I don't. Think <laughs> that that would have worked. Very <laughs> no, that wouldn't have worked very well. Uh, I mean, some of my friends would say I would have tried that, but uh, but no. But if they're traveling, why am I not traveling? Yeah. You know. Yeah. When you're hanging out with. I remember once I was hanging out with a doctor. Um, oh, what was it? What's his name? Uh, uh, Germany. Uh, huge. Uh, not Lucen. Lucent. Okay. Yeah, I was hanging out with him, and yeah. he shows up with like this crazy straw, in New Orleans, and this, yeah. you know, like, yeah. I'm like, if that guy's traveling, then I should travel. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's how it is. It's business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it it is, and it is a people business, one hundred percent. So, um, Hourglass, you still got Hourglass going. What are you producing over at Hourglass? Cab? Uh, no? no, well, we yeah. have two estate pro- projects. Okay. Um, and then we have a wine called HG3, which is a basically declassified younger fruit. Mm-hmm. Then we started growing with it. So we do buy some fruit Merlot, Petit Syrah throughout Napa Valley. But really, it's all about dr- um, estate-driven red wines. So mm-hmm. we have Blue Line, which is about 20, 20 acres. And then we have Jeff's family's property, which is four and a half acres of that's about thirty year old yeah, thirty year old Cabernet as of last year. So it's all C clone, one ten R. And then then blue line is Merlot, Cabernet Franc and Cabernet off that property. So super fun, been fun to work. We have our winery there. Unfortunately it did burn down in twenty twenty. Oh jeez. So um, now we're rebuilding right now, hopefully in twenty twenty three we'll have 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 a home again. So perspective, what was the, the damage on that? Oh, twenty twenty? Yeah, I mean uh, for like like, like, was it like, is like, was it a hundred million dollar loss? That was the loss to have the winery burned down. And oh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, besides just the devastation, I mean, just money. I, I think I, I really don't know the number because Jeff, you know, is yeah. very, very quiet about it, but yeah. just it's hard. I mean, I've never, I've never had to, you know, watch my house burn down or something where you <sighs> build something, but I know I built, helped build Jeff, over the last 10 years, I'd helped Jeff build this. Mm-hmm. And to watch it burn down was pretty damn deflating, you know, PTSD afterwards. And I was there when it burned down. I was, I was about, I was in Three Palms, and Three Palms faces the winery. I, I went up there to watch it. I had to watch it. It's weird. I mean, I don't know. I guess if you know it's coming, and I, it was coming all day at us. And then I have, I have a ton of pictures from this, but I never posted anything because, mm-hmm. you know, people die during this. I, it's mm-hmm. just not a cool mm-hmm. thing. But mm-hmm. I eventually will probably post some of the pictures because yeah. there are pretty, some crazy pictures. Well, it's historic. It is history. It's historic. And I have one of my pictures, actually, I think. I gave to a friend that they picked up off Instagram for a USA Today posted it because mm-hmm. I was there right when it started because it started three minutes from my house. Jeez. And to watch, I said I had to see it. So, and then it started coming at us, and you know, and so, but it was I, I can't even put it into words really to watch it happen, and and then you know to be able to get you know to know that we some was saved, some was not. Uh, you know, we had wine and tank that we lost that we thought was going to be really, really good. Mm. We were very careful about how we picked. We, we thought the wines were going to be great. And so from there, you know, it was hard. I mean, you know, to lose a whole vintage, basically. And we had a little bit of red wine that we sold, and you know, a little bit of HG3, a little bit of Merlot, but nothing else was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was tough. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I got was about uh, yes, my it was at, at Yale. I was tasting, and they were asking about fires. And I said, it was, "I was like, it's the weirdest thing." Like, because I live in Santa Barbara. Like, I'm yeah. like, you're you you are. 
it's so dangerous, but you're fascinated by it. You like, like I, I understand why you had to look. Like, like you grew up in California. Imagine East Coast, like when you just see fire just coming down a mountain. I mean, it, it's uh, well, it's it's almost mesmerizing. It's yeah. Like, why do you stare at a yeah, fireplace? It, it is. Know? You're and right. Now, you're now going to a this is not a mire. This is not a fireplace. This is actually happening, <coughs> and it's unbelievable. It's, it's it's unlike anything you've ever seen when you see it. As you know, when you've seen it live, you're like, this is pretty damn destructive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. It's un- and it, it's not something that happens every day. So you know, water flows. You see water, but you see fire like that. It's it'll blow your mind. Mm-hmm. And it's it's mm-hmm. it, it's. I almost say it's pure evil, but it's not. It's something more than that. It's nature at, at its worst. I mean, yeah. And, and then the winds are blowing it, and it, the way it flows. Because they'll say fire flows like water, and it does because it flows from high to low. It doesn't go up a mountain. It goes right. down. It just it's just kind of crazy that way. Yeah. So yeah. you know, um, it's it's um, yeah, it's, it is fascinating and it is nature um and like i said it doesn't happen every day because you know when i was gosh yeah Yeah. i mean when i was in california like oh my god they have earthquakes they have fires like not every day well earthquakes i mean are a different thing i always jokingly with people from the south or from from the midwest like dude we don't have hurricanes we don't have earthquake season you have hurricane season you have tornado season these are seasons it's like baseball season football season (laughs) like it's gonna happen it's gonna happen we just don't know when yeah you know so you don't worry about it but but like for like for 90 to 120 days like this shit is can happen yeah oh here we go you know so it's like wow that's a little different you know when you start naming them and you get to the f's and the g's that's when you don't have a problem you know so yeah it's a little different um like, how do you get these consulting? Because I mean, just, is this like word of mouth? I mean, like, so Senegal, uh, which that's you know, I I've had those wines. Um, yeah, well, I founded that with David, and that was just a matter of he interviewed, and we, we I think it does all become in the end we're all pretty equal mm-hmm. of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, you have Thomas and Philippe and Aaron and myself. You have Andy Je- Andy Erickson mm-hmm. and all these people, and, and because of that, I think. It's all about fit at that point. Who's going to give me the most attention to mm. what I need and want as a, as an owner? These guys, most of the people that are coming in now are very wealthy. Um, they want attention, and everybody needs something a little bit different. Um, and so I think they just for us it fit. You know, we fit. Helen Kaplinger would be another one. We all kind of what's the fit? You know, and 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 how you handle it. So I know for Almarosa, it was a matter of me wanting to mentor somebody not necessarily having it be all about me was very I you know, idyllic or, or very much positive for the ownership group behind Almarosa. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people didn't like it. That you, you know, I don't look for jobs. I don't look at all. I don't advertise. I don't do any of that. It's just a matter of, hey, I've heard you're really good. Let's work together. Yeah. And so Paso, I mean, that was through Eric, Eric Jensen because I helped Eric with My Favorite Neighbor mm-hmm. and He's like, hey, you should really help my other friends out. And so that's how it worked. And Eric and I worked for two years together. I mean, Eric is a force, as you know. <laughs> MJ, you love Paso. So you love Paso as much as I do. So he's a force in nature. He so is. He I think, is. I think we can o- you can only fight close to s- for so long to the sun, and then your wings get burned off with Eric. Yeah, so. yeah. And he's on to the next thing. But, hey, man, what he's done for Paso is second to none. Uh, yeah, I mean, right down to the philanthropy. I mean, everything. Oh, the must charities thing. I mean, everything. It's unbelievable. And, you know, it takes someone like that, a force of nature, and, who doesn't take no for an answer yep. to do that? And I've, I've been, I'm in awe of what he's done. Yeah. So, and I, interesting enough, I mean, I've seen, I've had him on the podcast and been on his podcast, and it, it goes to like personality. And you know, he came out of the music business, so he, he knew a festival, like he knew how to sell, right? Back to it again, you know, comes back to that, right? Um, oh yeah, you know, uh, the juice is great, but you still got to sell it. Yep, and you know, again, I, I think that's the funny thing, though, and you need to have the sizzle and the steak. 
those are the best wineries. Some people have sizzle, some people have steak. Mm-hmm. When you have both, and they can both work together, that's a, that's a juggernaut of a brand. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then uh, you did a stint at um, well, Amici Olima. Yeah, Amici's been a great brand to work with. They're all we buy all our fruit, but yet we touch. What's great about Olima is, and I always talk about Amici a bit. Well, Amici is very much high-end red wines and so forth, but Olima is definitely the fighting varietal 15 to $20 wines that I've just enjoyed the heck out of making. So I'm going to pour myself some. Yeah, pour some of your um, beautiful. I love the color. Anytime thanks. a wine's this color, I know I'm going to like it's it. It's Oakville Ranch, man. It's yeah. just a great piece of dirt. Um, so. <laughs> but Olima is great. You know, and these are wines that you could pick up for 15 to $20. My wife loves the Olima Chardonnay. That wine, you know. She gets it at Total Wine. We do oh, a lot she of She gets it at Total Wine. Store. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. hey, look. I mean, they, no, they I do know. a ton of a business. With I, I have a ho- lot of respect for what they do. No, so. I tell people, if you know wine, it's a great place to buy wine. Exactly. If you know wine, it's actually a good place to buy wine because you go in there and cherry pick. Uh-huh, 100%. And they have some really good. I mean, there are, there are a lot of stores. So I think, yeah. like anything else, there are some stores that are better than others. But they have some great people that work there, too. Yeah. So, you know, but that's, I've really enjoyed that because I understand that not everybody can afford $100. Yeah. But everybody can definitely afford fifteen to twenty on a great bottle of wine to, to do that, and that's what Olima's given us. So, this is minty. Yeah, there's a little bit of eucalyptus yeah. next to the vineyard. Yeah, and it, it comes and it goes. So yeah. now it's showing it again. I mean, it's not like hard to mind, but but you know, it's yeah. like, like so um, dark. This dark is fruits. this is on the last. Is this literally this vineyard looks up to Ovid up on Pritchard Hill? It's the last mm. one of the last vineyards in Oakville before it goes up to Pritchard Hill. So. It's delicious. Ah, oh my god! Try, try. You try, you do, you do. So yeah. <laughs> so, but Alima is very much a wine that you know it's for the masses, and I love touching it because it's probably the m- biggest wines that we make, the most quantities that people would touch mm-hmm. about what I do. Mm-hmm. We take a lot of risk, we're pride in making those wines good. We we spend a lot of time on those wines. It's almost harder to make those wines than it is to make a Tokelon Cabernet. Oh yeah, you know I you can need, see that. You know, because looking for fruit, how are you going to craft it? What are you going to do? I think you should always err. If you're going to make those type of Chardonnays, you should always err towards acid and fruit. If you want to make a big butter bomb, you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, now people do, and they they build yep. their brands. Yep. But I think we want it. We err towards green apple, you know, pear, you know, jasmine flowers, stuff like that on those wines. So. Yeah. No, that's a great project. Um, and then you consulted at an icon, Claude of All. Yeah, they were in the process of changing over. Um, uh, what was her name? Really good, good, good lady that was a winemaker there, and she left very quickly. And then Ted came on, but I was it was fifteen. There was no real winemaker, so it was me and um, oh gosh, what's her name? I'm sorry, just was didn't know we we're gonna talk about this. Uh, uh, what's her name? Anyways, she was so it was, it was a great woman, and I were the winemaker there. It'll come to me, and I'll yeah, you'll be at dinner and you text me. <laughs> and then and then Ted came on in sixty. So I worked with Ted for a couple years. Okay, super great properties. Uh, I understand why now Stag's Leap is so special and why. Uh, in the seven, you know, during the during the um, taste of of, of Pedro and Paris, why why, yeah. why why Stags Leap won? Yeah, I mean, you have the, the diurnal shifts in Stags Leap are better than anywhere else in Napa Valley. So s- warm days, super cold nights, by about two or three degrees, very different. So because of that, um, I think that's what makes great wines down there. I just I learned so much working at Clodeval, so it was super fun to work with and great team. Um, and then at, you know at the end sometimes just they don't they're like you know we, we think we're good I said great that's kind of how you I think when you work with consulting business you do in the end go 
there's going to be at some point that we're just going to come to the end. I'm not going to be doing anything new. Mm-hmm. If you want my palette on this, that's great. If not, I get it. So and it's okay with that, you know. So we went our separate ways, and we're still friendly. We, you know, we do make a little. They do some custom crush work for us for for Amici, mm-hmm. uh, for Olima. They do. We do make some Pinot and Chardonnay there. So we're still friendly that way. So it's good. Ted's actually over at Groth now. So I'm excited to see what he does there. So yeah, that's super cool. Do Do you find like when you have the opportunity, like you said, um, to work with younger winemakers, do you, do you think it's really cool when you see them, their careers progressing? Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, to look at what look what Jeff Owens has done at Odette. Man, those wines are bomb, the bomb. And then you have Ryan Noth over at um, over at Senegal. He's taken that way beyond anywhere I could take it. So, one hundred percent. I mean, it feels good. You know, you have this great sort of. You know, you touch these people for a while, and I always tell people what you know. Tony Soto told me this to me when I was interviewing with Tony Soto way back in the day, who I think is a legend. Mm-hmm. You know, and he goes, "Take everything that's positive from your jobs, from the people you that you work with, and keep it. Anything negative, throw it away. But keep working and keep taking this positive. Don't focus on the negatives because maybe you don't agree with it, but take the positives. Then you could become all that when you become your own winemaker becomes an amalgam of who you are." Right. And I think that's what I'm hoping they're doing now. That okay, Tony was really good at this or this, and he's awful at this. And I, like, I have strengths and weaknesses like everybody else. So, you know, it's been fun to watch them grow. And like, whoa, I never would have thought that. That's pretty cool. You know, like, oh, well, you know, you don't know everything, and no, I don't. So <laughs> it's one of those things. So, yeah, it's like the Bruce Lee winemaker philosophy. Like his whole martial arts, he took this from that and that, and then he, you know, and you come up with your own style. Well, that's really it. I mean, what when, when Miles Davis said, it took him eight to ten years to start playing the way he felt he should play yeah and the first eight to ten years is basically you playing like somebody else mm-hmm. and that's kind of how i feel that definitely in that way in the winemaking business you know up until about 2008 i was probably trying to chase something else and then after that it's like yeah i feel pretty good that these are right ideas and then built off those ideas and then i be- after a wait i became my own person that doesn't mean that we're not tasting wines and wow, what is that? What are they doing? What kind of oak is that? Or, you know, are they using stems? Are they not using stems? You know, these questions you always have. I mean, today we were drinking a bottle of Burgundy and, and is it, there's stems in there or not? I don't know. Well, if there is, it sure is good, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the debate. And you know, I think it's, I wish sometimes I could just drink wine and not think about it, you know? So, but it never happens. So. That's so funny. I, uh, Don Burns and I were talking about that. He's saying how at home he drinks, you know, he drinks a lot of, you know, um, French stuff, you know. Well, that's why I do birdies. too. Oh, I because because he, said, he said, because if I'm drinking a Paso wines, I'm working. I'm like, what kind of oak? It's the same thing. Did they destim this? Like, like, uh, is that new oak? Is, you know, what, uh, what, 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 what do you think? About, like, your brain, I said, because these are your peers, competition, whatever. And like, you're like, so you just open a bottle of Burgundy. I mean, you make Chardonnay, but, you, but then you're, you're enjoying it to go, ah, ah. Oh no! I drink a lot of white burgundy too. I've been, I'm still looking. <laughs> I think no matter what you taste, can can I learn something? F- is, are they doing something in the Rhone that might help me with Cabernet? Yeah. Are they doing something in Spain that might help me with with with, with Pinot or, or, or Syrah? I mean, you never know. This this weird one technique. If you're just debating and, and just 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 riffing off this stuff, is this work or not work? You know. <laughs> so it's one of those different different concepts. So you started Zen, and now like you consult on a bunch of different things. Like like you you know you, you know you make your own Chardonnay. You do Chardonnay Lima, you're doing a little Pinot Noir, you're doing Pinot down in uh, Omarosa. Omarosa. Yeah. Um, how how does how does how does how does that happen? How does that work? Because like you know, if you're in Burgundy, you make Burgundy. Mm-hmm. I think you know it's funny that because this is not the first time I've been asked that. First and foremost, I was a consultant just to be 
regular questions of winemaking. Got it. Now, if you want to go deeper, I mean, I drink a lot of red and white burgundy. I do, yeah. and I love those. Who doesn't love those wines? I mean, now, I think with price, you know, I don't think I'm just going to be pulling DRC out of my yeah. cellar anytime <laughs> soon or coach, you know, because, I mean, you're three, $4,000, but I think you have to put a different hat on, and I mm-hmm. think there's very much different hats for different people. When I was at Duckhorn, you got to remember, we made Zinfandel, which was Paradox. We made Golden Eye, which was Pinot, and I was involved in all those projects at some point or another, so... You looked very quickly on how these wines were made and how they were consulted, and you go to Burgundy, you go to Bordeaux, mm-hmm. put different hats on, and like, like, what are we trying to achieve here? You know, and that—that's really how you look at it. You know, what, what I always tell my clients: what when you make a wine, you put a wine in a bottle. What are you trying to achieve? What's your inspiration for this wine? What what wine did you taste and said, you know, I'd love to make this varietal. I want to make this wine. What mm-hmm. inspired you to craft this wine? And that's, in the end, that's, that's any of these wines. That's what we do. I mean, for me, I mean, my Chardonnay would be like Kistler, the Kistler from the mountains, or, or Peter Michael from the mountain Chardonnays. But Burgundy is my inspiration because of the acidity and the freshness. Mm-hmm. Now, we make California wines. We're not making Burgundy. but mm-hmm. Or for the wine, the Avoyles, my favorite of all the – you're going to laugh at this, but my favorite of all the uh, – I mean, it's easy to say now, but back then it was so different was Maya from Dallavale. Oh, yeah. You know, but back, but back in the ni- early 90s, they're like – what the f- this it's a weird lipstick label it's yeah. a black stamp <laughs> it's half cabernet franc and cabernet who would do this this is crazy stock and then parker goes 100 bam what a genius these people are the most <laughs> smartest people in the world oh my god they're so amazing but that wine was always different and cool mm-hmm. and so this wine oakville cabernet franc cabernet that's the wine that speaks to me cabernet franc from the south you know from from the right bank of france you know it's yep. just uh, from bordeaux it's, yep. it's kind of you know the franc based wines of mm-hmm. course mm-hmm. are what spoke to me so I always tell people like Chabon this, Blanc. what, what, Oof. yeah, what drives you? What, what, what's the wine? So when I sit down with you and you're going to go, hey, you know, Chuck, you know, you make this great wine. What's by, you know, if you can't really say like, well, why are you doing it then? Yeah. I mean, everything should have, and I think everything you do in life should have an impetus of what fueled mm. you to move forward, mm-hmm. you know, so. Mm-hmm. So this is 2016. What was the vintage like for you? Because this is just. Mm, 16 is, silky, t- 16 and Oof. 19. I think are some of the best vintages I've ever worked in Napa Valley. 16, just everything came into place. Beautiful, nothing wrong. It's just, the, I always was talking about this today because, you know, 2022 was a, was a vintage that we dealt with some heat and so forth. Some vintages, uh, every vintage has great wines. Mm-hmm. How you get to the end point is whether is it a winemaker's vintage or is it a, is it a, is it a Mother Nature vintage. Mm-hmm. 16 was 100% Mother Nature vintage. Mm-hmm. So but these were made in the vineyard. We just, we just sort of um, shepherded them to the bottle. Yeah. That's really what I. There's nothing more I can say. That I think that's a hundred percent vote of, of approval when you say that. You know, Mother Nature and just shepherded to the bottle. Yeah, so. that's so so cool. Um, yeah, you've done some some work down in Paso. I have been there a while. Jada, Kaliza, Copia, Barinder. Oh yeah, they're, they're so great. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I helped them taste wine. Him, me and Pete work together, so <laughs> I love working with Pete. You know, so they've been fun. I mean, they are passionate people. Yeah. So they are. I, I think Paso is just an interesting spot. I mean. When I went down, I went down there in 2000, and Aaron Jordan had just, they had just, Turley had just bought mm-hmm. Vicente. Mm-hmm. And I remember Aaron Jordan going, you know, I got this vineyard Uberoth. He goes, yeah, cool, cool. He goes, I pick it with like 29 bricks, and it's like 3.2 pH. And all I heard was 29 bricks. Yeah. I didn't get the acid part. Yeah, that's what people don't understand about Paso Robles. Yeah. Everybody, they, they, because they think they're just these high alcoholic big wines, and they don't understand 
It has to be that ripe to deal with the acid. The, 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 well, you're, you're, wait, you're hanging fruit to get the acid down. You're yeah, hanging fruit to get yeah, the ripeness. exactly. <laughs> no, it's bananas. It's, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Well, people don't understand. Number one, Paso's at 700 feet elevation. Yep. When you pull into that town, you're at 700 feet. Somewhere like, I think, Torin, Scott's plot's yep. property is, I want to say he's at four, or, or even um, Chris, Chris's property over at Via Creek. Or the, yeah. That's 1,400, 1,500 feel elevation. Yeah. I mean, uh, Howell Mountain starts at 1,400 feet. Yeah. And that's just these rollers, yep. these, 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 mid, these Central Coast rollers. I mean, you ride a, you, if anybody out there rides road bikes, you'll ride a road bike down there, you'll, mm. you'll, you'll burn 2,000 feet. That's where the U.S. Cycling team trains in the Central Coast California because yeah. of the terrain. Oh, the rollers will kill you. I yeah, mean, you do an hour, you're at fifteen hundred feet elevation yeah. of climb. You're like, yeah. why are my legs broken? <laughs> and then you look at your altimeter. You're like, oh no. And I, you, but you, but you know this better than anyone. And then the soil's all chalk. It's, it's all, all chalk. It's all you know. Chris, Chris Cherry found you know it's found whale teeth. I mean, I heard yeah. the story about. I'm sure you heard the story about. Uh, I think Justin over at Saxum kept running over a rock in his vineyard yeah. and realized it was a whale's pelvis. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable. It's on one of a kind. Uh, Don, that's what Turtle Rock. There was the fossilization there. There's yeah, huge, this, the huge sea turtles. You know, um, but yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's one of those things where people latch onto something. You know, they have a ten dollar wine. It's flabby. Blah blah blah. blah and this is this is uh, you know, there's this is what we do as people. We form. We form uninformed opinions a no, lot of times. I did it. I, I 20 years ago. I should yeah. have been another 20 years ago. I mean, I t- talk to Scott Hawley all the time. We're the same age. We laugh about it. Yeah, like, yeah. So, well, you chose Napa. I chose here. I'm all, and you have this beautiful estate. I know. I'm doing well. I'm not going to argue. No, no, no. You're doing, but, <laughs> but, but like, I but see like, what he and his wife are like, like a wow. fraction of the cost. Oh, it's <laughs> beautiful. And their lifestyle is great. I you mean, know? you know, and so I love it down there. I do. I mean, Napa Valley is my home, and that's where I'm, I'm from, but. I love what they're doing down there. Yeah. So no, it's 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 fun, but yeah. I and then, um, like I said, you're down uh, with uh, Amorosa, and um, I had Samra on. Like she was completely green when you mm-hmm. like like you really are a mentor to her. She's uh, green, but she's super smart. I mean, I, 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 oh when yeah, people say green. I mean, yeah, she might not have a lot of experience, but she's super intuitive and super sharp. Yeah. I mean. And that's what you can't teach, intelligence. I mean, I think everybody I work with has it. Everybody I've ever been in the wine business is super smart. I think for some reason it's just this business, as you know, draws people that just are, are nonconformist, smart people. <laughs> you yeah, know, just, yeah. They want to do something different and just want to be sort of that way. And she's, she's – I always jokingly say to people, I don't care if you're black, red, white, green, yellow, purple. I don't care if you're a woman or a man. Either you can do this job or you can't. I'm kind of the same way, man. You know, you know. So. And, and so, and so, crack what we said. Like literally, this guy interviewed me for this paper. I'm doing something, and and he and I we had this conversation. And he called me back. He's like, I'm just trying to understand why the oldest like Acker would hire you, like the oldest wine store. I said, I said, man, I was handsome, I was articulate, and I was good with people. They could teach me wine, like yeah. like like so you can't teach the you, first. You can't three. teach the first three. Nope. Nope. And it was, I, and I, I was like, I mean. That's you know like I, I knew how to work with people. I'd work retail. They taught me why. You know, but so you could sell you could sell medical equipment. You could sell anything. I yeah. mean, you could sell bonds, yeah. stocks. You could yep. do anything. That's just that they can't uh, teach me the the business. I'll do sales. Right. You know. So yeah. Yeah. Samra's just I love her. She's <laughs> <a> Samra. <laughs> you had her on the TV. Everybody yeah. who's listening knows. I mean, yeah. She she doesn't suffer fools well. I love her to death. No, no, so. I love that. You know. Um, and I agree. Like it's so funny. I'm, I'm I had a, a guest who kind of disagreed. I was like, I think like you. There's a lot of, I mean, obviously there's a lot of boneheads in the world, but wine, like, there's levels to the game, and, and they're just, I just, you meet so many people who are like, you know, I was a philosophy major, or I was a philosophy professor, like Abe Scolia, right? Yeah. You know, or, or I was a lawyer, I did, you know, like, you know, 
um, and, or, or you know, I, was, I dropped out of med school, like uh, McCarrath, Overstreet, Brulium, you know, like, yeah. but like you fall in love with this, 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 this agricultural product, this beverage, and then it, it changes your life. It does. You know, I, I was lucky to discover it at 19, and uh, most people don't get that. You know, I always tell my daughter, who's, you know, going to college now, like, look, I was gifted something. You know, not everybody knows what they want to do right out of college mm-hmm. or right in college, and I was gifted this. Mm-hmm. But she seems pretty driven to what she wants to do, and I said, well, that's what she wanted to do, and she loves it. She wants to be a geneticist or a genetic therapist and stuff. You know, so I'm like, well, that's smarter than me. I mean, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I mean, I, I, just make, I just make, you know, as just you know, fermented grape juice. That's what I do. You know. <laughs> or was it uh, the uh, punch peddler, like Justin Yeah, yeah Justin yeah. That's kind of what I do. And so, you know, the reality of it is, I'm like, go get him, Tiger. And she loves it, but... I'm sure she'll make some decisions before that might be changed, but I was blessed with that. But, you know, not everybody gets to do that, but this business does end up finding, I mean, especially when people rise to the top, everybody's smart in this business. Mm-hmm. And everybody's articulate, well-read, and, and just loves, you know. But everybody shares a love for hip-hop in the end. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, our generation, absolutely. I mean, it, it comes down to, like, like this is the wine hip-hop generation, you know, um, uh, of, uh, you know, like, I had Sam Couturio and he was talking about how <laughs> his parents found his NWA tape. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it happened to me, too. You know, although my parents are a little more, more probably forgiving than them, but they, they listened to The Grateful Dead. I mean, come well, on. Well, that's what yeah, that, that's on. a joke. I love Sam said he's like, my parents were like, you need more psychedelics in your music. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> you don't no, have enough drugs I, in your music. That's not wrong, too. Yeah. You, know, you know it well enough. <laughs> it's so exactly. No. Well, I, it's funny because I've been working in the cellar long enough. Is someday it went from Led Zeppelin to Tribe Called Quest. And I don't know when that happened, but I'm ha- I love them both. You know, for me, it was it was the Beastie Boys, Rick Rubin. Yeah, Rick Rubin. The, the back to Rick license Rubin. to ill sampling the grateful uh, sampling um, Led Zeppelin. Well, here's the funny thing about it is like a lot of the younger generations never heard Paul's Boutique. I know, which I don't understand. I mean, it's one of the best sample. Although I do think it's all going to change in, in March when uh, Tribe. Oh no, sorry, De La Soul gets to release or a catalog. Because yeah. I mean, you know, when, when Three Feet High comes out, those are some albums that I think we've been so long away from. Those albums came out in '89. Silly Dan. Silly Dan. Oh, yeah. My dad used to listen to Silly Dan, but I have that on vinyl, and it's like I play it for people. Like, what is this strange mess of music? I'm like, this is a, one of the best albums ever made. De La so. is what kind of got me into hip hop because it was so different. Oh yeah. Well, um, yeah. and and like I've seen De La Tribal Course like a dozen times live, like in rooms this big. <laughs> so funny. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. Um. And uh, just uh, it is it is very funny. Um, like you go to like a, a Charlie Bird or some of these restaurants, and it's just hip hop soundtracks, man. Well, it's funny, you know. We flew in, out on JetBlue, and the sound, you know, they do they do they do the food, and they also dictate a, a soundtrack that's that's curated yeah. for them. It's all hip hop, yeah. which I love. I mean, that's it's it's it, it's really great music for the background and for everything, or yeah. even for the foreground. Yeah. But listening and loving it, so it's it's funny. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> So, like, um, what is, uh, what's been going on, um, you know, so you had the fires in 2020, you had the heat spikes, like, kind of, like, how are you feeling about this year? I mean, it's early, because you've got all this rain, though. I mean, what, what are your feelings, it's really early, but what are your feelings right now, forecasting out? I love rain. When we see rain, I know it was, you know, Paso got hit, you know, the storms hit Central Coast and Santa Barbara much harder than, I mean, we're used to that kind of rain. They're not. No, I no. mean, I think they got 12 inches of rain in Santa Barbara. It's mm-hmm. like one of, the, one of the largest rain days in the history mm-hmm. of Santa Barbara. That storm hit the mid coast and came up. And so, I mean, it was definitely um, Pineapple Express low. But the more rain on the ground, the more that our aquifers fill, that's better for all of us, especially in California because we've been in the drought. So 
I'm feeling good right now. I will say that more rain also creates more growth later, you know, under shrubbery and growth, which also can be more fuel for fire. So we got to be cognizant of that, but never going to say no to rain. Never. You know, we're getting more rain, I think, this weekend. So we're never going to say no to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's cool. Um, (coughs) So the stuff you're working on, um, Patria, Mm -hmm. um, like kind of what's. What's the vision? I mean, I, what, what, what was the vision behind it? Because I know vision shift, but what was the vision behind it and where do you see it moving? Um, I think, you know, right now, it's a great question. Um, when I started, I wanted to work with Oakville Ranch. Okay. Um, I worked with that when I was at Duckhorn, and it's, it's the highest appellated Oakville vineyard on the Eastern Hills. So it's pure red soil, Phil Couture Farms, it's organically farmed. And this is a vineyard that I've always loved. So I got in there, I make a Cabernet from there as well. I make this red blend Cabernet from Cabernet. And then about there's another vineyard I always wanted to work with. I worked with this gentleman named Alan Price for years, and he's this crazy Tegan. I don't know if you ever had Tegan on the website. I, I did. I did a um, IG live, but I want to get Tegan sit down proper with him. Yeah, next Tegan's amazing. And yeah, Tegan, he's, he's another encyclopedia wine. Yeah. I, I, his Instagram is is legit, like worthy social media. Like it's just so fucking informative. It is. You know, he's crazy. He's super smart. And he's like, wait, you got that vineyard? He's all, that guy, I thought that guy was homeless. You know, <laughs> Alan just doesn't care about money. I mean, his family owns Spotswood before they sold, uh, for, they sold it for the Novak family. Okay. Um, and so he owns a, this one little one-acre piece of property on Hudson Vineyard next to Spotswood. It's 30-year-old Cabernet. And I've been asking him for years to get it. And he goes, hey, it's coming available. Would you like it? I go, yes, I'd love it. Mm. So I bought that. So those are the two main drivers. But I did start doing a Napa Valley Cabernet be- because of the fact that some of my blocks at Oakville Ranch are younger, and I didn't think that they had the density and the richness for the Oakville. So that'll be the next step. And then at that point, I think I'm good for a while, just tinkering. I'd love to find another single vineyard site. I've had some opportunities. Price point, the price of the fruit sort of stopped me. Mm-hmm. You know, these are firm but fair pricing as in Napa Valley standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, this will be 165 this, you know, and then the Chardonnay 65 but then my, my Oakville Ranch is 125 and price is 125 That's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. No, no, no. But, I mean, that's a banger. That's the, the both. Though, listen, that article Esther wrote, like, the average price is, like, 340 So, I mean, these that's, like. Yeah, and I can make money. I can make a living at these yeah. prices, and I'm happy yeah. with it. And I'm But 65 I'd gladly pay, like, to know that I'm going to get, like, you know, that, that Burgundian style, but that little bit of more California ripeness. I mean, that's. That's Thank you. a no-brainer for me, man. But I don't think I need to run into anything. Oh, actually, that's not true. I lied to you. <laughs> Just look at me. I'm lying already. Um, I do have a small vineyard in Moon Springs in Paso, Syrah, that I had planted for me specifically for Patria. Um, and it's one acre. Uh, it's it's 877 on 110R. Um, yeah, so no, either 110R or St. George. I can't remember. It's super steep. Mm-hmm. Um, Moon Springs is a vineyard that's basically off of Bethel Road, west, west Paso. Okay. So, Cool, colder yep. site, mm-hmm. eastern facing, so sunsets behind it. Mm-hmm. I got a little bit of fruit this year. We'll get our first crop next year. So it's a block that I've been waiting for almost four years to get fruit from, but I was able to pick it when, as it was getting put in. And I, I, I know it's, it's 877 on 110R, almost positive. So, um, but you know, everything we're going into the ground with now, and, you know, I did actually buy a piece of property in Paso as well that we're planting. Everything's going in with water resistant rootstock, you know, flood, uh, drought 110R, St. George. Uh, looking at different canopy structures for for drought resistance and water use, and just sort of looking at the next step of where California is going with with the climate. I hate saying change; it is changing, but I always say climate weirding. 
because yeah. you never know if we're going to get back to there or not. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I, like there, that. I would say there's two there's two questions in that. There's climate weirding, and there's do we take good care of the planet? I think we know we don't. So yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's, yeah that's you know, so <laughs> there is some things sometimes that, that we can't control. That's mother nature. So, you know. yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like. You 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 have this like first of all the wine is just it's beautiful like I mean it's pop and pour we didn't decant this I mean it's silky I'm sure it's gonna ch- obviously it's gonna continue to, to uh, evolve um, how how long have you been I mean so what's the oldest what's your library like for like your red wines at Patrick? I have very little I mean I did I did this classic um, you know small entrepreneurial mistake right. oh, I can get a thousand bucks I'll sell that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. Now everybody's like, hey, what's your library? Like, I have three cases, maybe four. I got about two to three cases of everything I have left. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, you should save more. I'm like, well, if I save more, I'm going to be out of business. So, yeah. you know, I made, and everybody warned me, and it, it's no one ever listens, and you sell it all because you need that money. Yeah. And this is all cash flowed. I mean, I didn't go to the bank and borrow money. We got a little line of credit, but, you know, it's always, they only give you money when you don't need it. Well, that's, you know how that works. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know, once you're successful, like, oh, I'll give you all the money in the world. Yeah. Like, well, I really don't I need don't it need anymore. It. Yeah. So. I mean, why, uh, listen, if you can do it yourself, do it yourself. It makes total sense. So, but this is, um, I mean, I think a lot of the, this wine is the vintage too. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not going to sit here and, and, and lie to you. I mean, 16 is just a great vintage. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's freaking stupid. So, any, um, so you talked about Paso. Any other uh, exciting projects you got? Well, I do. I work more? a little bit with the Lasseter family in Sonoma. Okay. That's been really fun to work with Danielle. Uh, I always, sorry, Danielle, if I get your name wrong, and I will. Langua, I always get her last name wrong. Um, she's super talented, making some great wines at Lasseter. A lot of Rhone wines there. So they're big fans of Grenache. So we're doing a lot of Grenache or Syrah. We're working with Isabel Gassier. She's consulting on those wines as well. So it's been fun to work with her. Philippe was, of course, a part of that. Unfortunately, you know, mm-hmm. God rest his soul, he's gone now. Mm-hmm. But that was really fun to work with Philippe. You know, can be, and those wines are really good. And I'm gonna find those. I, I'm, a, I, you know, I love Grenache. Yeah, yeah, I know you. I know. I, I know you're a big Rhone fan. <sighs> yeah. So I definitely got to come. You got to yeah. come up and check out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. All estate-driven wines. Mm-hmm. Phil Farms. Phil brought me in to help. So um, that's been really fun to grow with, with Danielle there. But other than that, I'm just really trying to get you know Hourglass up and running again, focusing on my own things. And I am working with one one small client named Kia um, Bahina, and he's doing uh, Neo Tempo wines. Uh, Antonio just gave him a huge shout out about one of the exciting new Cabernets. So that's been pretty good for us. But overall, you know, it's really trying to focus on what I got going on. I don't need more. I, I just want to get better. Vineyardist, I work with the vineyardist and the winemaker there. That's been fun. That's actually one of the most, hopefully when you come to Napa, I'll take you there and we'll, we'll go taste. That's a stunning property. That's Diamond Mountain, but it's the farthest northern Diamond Mountain property, full eastern exposure, super steep. Filcatory farms it all organically. Super cool project there too. And you know, those are, that's enough. I mean, I don't need more. I just want to sort of focus. So <laughs> that's what's all, is the, the whole joke on the whole consulting is only one more, man. I'm sure you've heard every consulting. Yeah. Your friend, just one more and I'm done. Just one more and I'm done. Just one more and I'm done. Next thing you have 54, right? You know, so. It's, yeah, that article, Thomas is like, I don't even know how many I'm consulting with him. Yeah, I don't think he would probably <laughs> want to say that again. Yeah, but, yeah, but, um, yeah I know. But he knows how many. He's yeah. a good friend of mine. He knows how many. So. I'm sure, but you know, it's like, you write the, those articles and shit, right? So. Yeah, well, again, it's just. It is an interesting time. Um, you know, everything's changing now, so we'll see. Yeah, and I think, it, like you said, I mean, it is everything is cyclical, and you you came in right at a good point. I mean, just and you were you found the right people, relationships, and but it all goes back to that. You know, I found the right people I like to work with. Jeff and I. I mean, hopefully, I don't know if you ever spending time with Jeff. Mm-mm. You and Jeff would really get along well. Yeah. So I, mean, I I I got to get out to Napa. 
um, you know, uh, I'm that's another reason I'm so glad you came in because like uh, you're people are like oh, you're not doing nap stuff. I'm like Napa doesn't love me the way Sonoma does. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll get you up does. there. There's a lot of no. people that would love to hang. No, out No, I know. Here, I so. mean, Dan, I love Dan Petrosky. Um, you know, got to get up. You know, uh, there's just can't hang with Dan. He's tough. That's a tough hang. He he goes hard. I love that guy, but. I, we always joking like he's the East Coast version of me because we're the same age and he grew up on the East Coast and yeah. we're both big dudes and we played football. And there's not a lot of football players in the in the, in the wine business, yeah. as you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I always laugh at that. Yeah. Like, you know, but he ended up in Italy somehow and I ended up in Napa. So. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, yeah, no, he he's a great guy. I love I love Dad. Oh my God. Um, so we're gonna wrap up. I know you got you're in town for some cool shit. Um, and again, thanks for coming in. So I play this little game called FMK, Fuck, Marry, Kill. Okay, this will be good. Yeah, three grapes. <coughs> and um, I pick these. Uh, sometimes I call an audible, but I pick these. Now I'm going to stick with them because after having this wine and conversation. And I didn't. Cabernet Franc, Nebbiolo, Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir. Which one are you fucking? Which one are you marrying? Which, one are you, which grape are you killing off? Well, I make Cabernet Franc. Well, sorry, I gotta come back here. Yeah, um, it's just, uh, and it was that's why I was like, I di- I don't know why I didn't I didn't say because uh, I I didn't say Cab Sauv. I said, no, I didn't know you. Were, I was like, but Cab Franc, like, it's a it's when it's I love it when it's done like this. You know? Well, I would say this. I would say I would say kill Nebbiolo. As in he's California in town for the parole. At, well, <laughs> in California, see how I. He's trying to. You always got to just come in there. Yeah, I, like I don't know. There's not. There's few Nebbiolos made in California that I think can compete with what's done in Barolo, Barbaresco, and so forth. So, not saying kill it like in the world. I'm saying kill it in my world. Yeah, no, exactly. For yeah. making, yeah. not for drinking. Yeah. Um, fuck Pinot Noir because it's just well, it's Pinot it's Noir. It's fucking Pinot Noir. Well, Pinot Noir. That's, that's not fair. Pinot Noir and Nebbiolo are just the same varietal. I know. <laughs> one has more tannin. One has more tannin. So exactly. And then and then Mary because I make it Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Franc is pretty damn cool. The more I work with it, I work with it on five different wineries now, so it's pretty damn cool. So I would say that one. I got to do it right now. Yeah. All right. Cool. And then. Uh, you know, you talked about this earlier about your your cool ass stepdad, but uh, what was the bottle? I mean, you had that all that ridge and zin around, but what was the bottle that really started all for you? What hooked you, man? That's a good question. Um, you're gonna laugh at this. There's two bottles because they were connected. It was a bottle of Renwood Syrah mm-hmm. that really blew my mind, and then I traded this this psalm at the time. Erez Klein was his name. He was up in San Francisco. He worked at Square One. He fell in love with a Syrah, and he goes, I need that Syrah. Well, there's 47 cases made, so. Mm-hmm. So I'll trade you a bottle of this wine called Queen of Hearts from Sinequinon for that bottle of wine. I go, I've never heard of that shirt. Look at that bottle. It's so fancy. Yeah. And so I got a bottle of Queen of Hearts from Sinequinon for a bottle of that wine. So those two wines were like, wow, it's pretty darn cool, man. So th- th- that, that Syrah got me, not only that, but got me into Sinequinon. So Damn, that's, that's, that's not a bad deal. Like. No, it was great. They made this 47 cases of those. I mean, I really think, though, Cabernet-wise, uh, 1991, the 1990-91-92, that vintage of Nat Dolla Cabernet was, to me, mm. really the wines that just sort of said, what is this? Mm. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Wow, that's so great. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, you all those wines, that whole coming of age, we could talk into a whole episode of just how those just were so different, so good, so amazing. And, and Spotswood 87 would be another one. I mean, there's mm. just wines. I could talk for hours about it. Yeah. Coastery and Burgundy, I mean, you know. Fucking Coast. I had Lyle Rails back on, and, like, 
he couldn't give the Kermit couldn't give Coach away when he first found it. Oh no, I mean <laughs> Thomas Brown and I became friends, and and he he would give the show. There was a restaurant called Willowside Cafe mm-hmm. in Russian River, and he'd be leaving, and I'd be going in. I'm like, hey, I know you. He goes, hey, I know you. You're Thomas Brown. Yeah, Tony. Okay, good to meet you. He goes. What do you get? And he goes, I just drank the kosher. Well, that's what I'm coming in to drink, you know, because they had it on the list. Yeah. And they had kosher. I think it was $105. Yeah. And it was the Marceau. It wasn't even the Burgundy yeah. Blanc. Yeah, it was yeah. the Marceau. Yeah. And, and, you know, now it's like you have to have it. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason for it. I, mean, I think it's one of the best, to me, it's, as good as Reds are. I love that wine. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's, that, it's one of those wines. When you find a white wine that's that fucking complex, it, yeah. it, that just rivals red wine, I love that. Yeah, no, it's and it's you know we would I you know now we go and we go to Burgundy and we try to find it wherever we can, but yeah. <laughs> that wine I would probably say for Chardonnay would have been, and then William Selly and Pinot when they were the early William Selly. Oh yeah, like, what, so, is so that? That Bert, what is yeah. that? What is that? You know, so the original guard. I, I know I, t- I just stretched the question out way longer. No, so, no, man, that's what we do. Yeah, you we know, just talk. And, and, and those wines were. I, mean, I tell a funny story too about we were at, when I worked at this wine store. All the guys worked there were all geeks for for French wine, and mm-hmm. I was like California. So we're at Mustard's, and this is back when Mustard's in the, had the coolest wine list. Um, and so they all wanted the Pignon or Pignon mm-hmm. from Rias. I'm on, mm-hmm. no, we need the 91 Old Hill from Ravenswood. And I talked them out of the, now I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever found <laughs> in my life. But just so funny how you change. You know, well, it's you funny. I mean, but those old uh, uh, Ravenswood, sh- shout out to Joel Peterson. Yeah. Old Hill, those Old Hill wines are, are mind boggling, you know. And so, and Phil farms it now. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's so, so fucking cool. Hey, Tony, man. Thanks so much for uh, coming in. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. PatriaWines.com um, on Instagram as such, um, or and or join our mailing list or come hang out with us. Uh, you, you can contact me through that as well, and you know, come see what we're doing. We're yeah. ha- we have fun, so yeah, definitely, guys, get on the uh, mailing list because you know mailing list wines are hard to get on, and if you can still get on this one, you should definitely get on. These wines are banging. Um, and don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. That's where you'll find info on the wine we drank, uh, links to uh, cool things we discussed. I'll put his social handles and a link to uh, patreonwines.com. Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. Peace. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.